Good evening, everybody. Is this the fourth thing? The fourth, I think, Wednesday night show from Freedom Aid Radio. Uh, I just couldn't take going seven days without talking to the smartest, wisest, and most curious listeners in the known universe. So uh, it's time for the midweek dip into the crack bag of listener questions for Stephbot. And uh, thanks, Mike, of course, for manning the helm as always. 9 11. 9 11. I feel. I feel maybe we should say something. 911. Is that the convenience store two doors up from the 7-Eleven? No. I believe it is the anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Center. Can I tell you? If you were to head back but in time, my friends, let us take ourselves on an ELO-style journey. The music is reversible, but time is not. If you never had an LP and are under 40, you have no idea what that joke means. But anyway, um, if you'd have gone back low these 12 years, and in the aftermath, this would have been the evening of 9-11. Now, I was actually, I was at work uh, back in the days where I had any kind of regular employment. Before I became a shiftless internet begging bum, I was, uh, I was at work. And uh, one of my programmers, who's actually a good friend of mine, he came in, uh, I don't know, I guess shortly after 9, said, a plane flew into the World Trade Center. I was like, well, that's not good. That's not, uh, that's not good at all. But, I mean, you know, a, a, a plane flew into the Empire State Building some time back. And, um, you know, these things, you just chalk it up to a pilot error, I suppose. And naturally, of course, he came back shortly later saying a second plane has flown in, at which point my pack and recognition kicked in and thought that this probably was not a statistical coincidence. And we actually were, we were kind of lucky in a way in that, this is, I mean, this is so far back in the internet days. We managed to get one of the last feeds from a local news station that was airing everything. And, of course, we saw all the Palestinians cheering and we saw, we watched the whole thing. And it really was creepy and crawly and, and horrifying and sickening and repulsive and vile and felt like. I didn't really understand much about foreign policy at the time. I mean, my job for 70 hours a week was entrepreneur, travel, manager guy. So I didn't really know much about sort of U.S. foreign policy and what it caused in the background, the backdrop, all that kind of stuff. But uh, I do remember uh, calling up my therapist that day and saying, listen, I, I can't come in for therapy. This is like my personal problems. It just don't seem that significant relative to what's occurring in the world today. And she was quite disappointed. Um, we did talk about it later. And <sighs> if you went back in time to that day, to that evening, to the evening of that day, and you said, in 12 years, an American president is advocating the allying with al-Qaeda representatives to overthrow the president of a nation that has been cordially received by Nancy Pelosi who has dined with John Kerry and his wife, people would not believe you. People would never believe that a U.S. president was considering throwing his lot in and supporting and maybe even arming al-Qaeda operatives to overthrow the president of Syria, Assad, with whom there are, and you can find these on the internet, beaming and joyful and happy pictures of him shaking hands with Nancy Pelosi. And somebody made a, 
a good meme. I love the cynical bitterness of political memes. <laughs> and um, it was like, hey, if Assad was so dangerous and such a horrible dictator, why didn't we just grab him when he was shaking Nancy Pelosi's hand? Or when he was dining with John Kerry and his wife. Statism, because it is so amoral and so power-hungry and so manipulative and so false, and it has all of the moral conscience of a water spilling on jagged rocks attempting to find the deepest hole it can fill. It requires a continual process of self-erasure, of the erasure of memory and of history and of context. It requires that you live in the kind of now that even spiders eschew. Now, spiders will build a web and they got to be patient and birds will build their nests. They got to be patient and ants got to go out and get all their stuff and bring it home. They got to be patient. They live in the future. They're animals which only live in the now. I guess it's down to an amoeba state. That's the kind of now, the kind of pure, blind, historyless, memoryless, retarded moment that you have to live in when you live in the constant, vile flow of status propaganda. The idea, 12 years ago, if you go and say, in 12 years, an American president will be aligned with al-Qaeda, potentially arming al-Qaeda, performing airstrikes on the part of al-Qaeda, against a president cordially received by the most senior of American diplomats and politicians. Uh, people would say, that's, that's treason, blasphemy. If you had made that the plot of Alias or 24 or a movie or something like that, if you made that as a plot, that an American president is allying with al-Qaeda, 12 years after 9-11, when the official story is al-Qaeda was 9-11 if you I mean you would have been accused of the most bitter cynical revolting nihilistic perspective on the world uh, that you would have been boycotted you would have been shouted down people that would have booed you people would have said what a black and vicious portrait of the American political system there is no one alive who could have been so cynical as to imagine that are 12 years after they claimed that this terrorist organization murdered in cold blood over 3,000 Americans, that the president would be allying with the rebel forces in Syria, which are not just representatives of al-Qaeda, not just kind of knotted up with al-Qaeda, but are actually al-Qaeda. But this is the weird thing that has to happen to your brain when you live in a state of society, is that you have to live in this amoral, empty, vacuous, soulless, postmodern hell of nothing and no one but the power and the lie of the moment. That is all you live on. That is all you breathe. That is all you feed to the blind, faceless, pink Floyd school children falling into the meat grinder souls of the democratic citizenry. I mean, there's an old statement that if people, it's been quoted many times, if people, if people knew how the Federal Reserve really operated, there'd be a revolution tomorrow. Come on. U.S. president is allying himself, is desperate to ally himself with al-Qaeda forces. And who's really talking about it? You can't hear about it. You can't really talk about it 
have we lost completely our capacity for moral outrage? Have we lost completely our capacity to get generally fucking pissed off at the psychotic nature of the system that we live under, that grinds us down? And grinds us down fundamentally with irrationality and immorality. Even so, more, more so than mere force. The force is just an effect of our internal forgetting, of our eternal ignoring, what Ayn Rand called the blank out. Do you remember what George Bush said? Ah, George Bush the Younger, the shrub of the family. What did he say? He said, in ringing tones, anybody who aids and abets the terrorist is a terrorist. Anybody who aids and abets the terrorists is a terrorist, and he who is not with us is against us. So, uh, terrorism is something to be solved by uh, kidnapping, extraordinary rendition, torture, arbitrary imprisonment, drone strikes against terrorists. And anybody who aids and abets the terrorists, you see, is a terrorist. Al-Qaeda is pretty much a terrorist organization, according to all U.S. documents and foreign policy, for the last, oh, say, 20 years. Anybody who aids the terrorists is a terrorist. Who's aiding the terrorists now, my friends? So, can we expect Barack Obama to be shipped off to some godforsaken CIA hellhole in a country with no extradition treaty, waterboarded, and asked to reveal his sources, and asked to reveal his intelligence, and asked to reveal the cells operating at large? Of course not. You see, that was then, this is now. And now can never be referred to then. Now can never be combined with then. There is no throughput of anything. We live the lives of like abused spouses, abused women. Well, he beat me up yesterday, but he's really nice today. He beat me up two days ago, yesterday and this morning, but this afternoon he gave me the most beautiful rose and all is forgotten. And now you can't even mention these about faces, these turnabouts. You know, you read this stuff in 1984, and it is a portrait of insanity, right? We are now at war with East Asia. We have always been at war with East Asia, whereas yesterday it was Eurasia. This constant erasing of the past, this constant living in the propaganda of the now, it squeezes and shreds and crushes any capacity for moral integrity in the heart of mankind to such a degree that I almost don't know, I almost don't know the degree to which I would seriously get behind and push for the continued success of the species as it stands. It is repulsive. It is repulsive the degree to which we have forgotten all the moral absolutes of yesterday for the sake of the complete opposite moral absolutes of today, and we don't even know that we've forgotten them. Look, it's one thing to say, I betray my principles. It's another thing to say, I have no principles. It's another thing to say, I will have these principles, which are the opposite of yesterday's principles, because these principles are more useful for me today. Those are all crazy 
but functionally crazy. What is not functionally crazy? What is psychotic beyond reason and evidence and empiricism and survival? Is to say, these have always been my absolute principles. Even though they were in fact the opposite of the absolute principles you had yesterday. To believe that universality and eternity can be opposite from day to day and have no sense of their opposition and have no sense that they've switched is like watching a compass swing round wildly and believe in the moment that every time slice is it perfectly pointing north. No matter where it is, no matter where it is in a second from now, no matter where it was a second from now in the past, in the future, in the press, doesn't matter. You just glance at it for a second, that's north. Swinging wildly, glance at it for a second, that's north. This is how insane we've become. And it is hard not to feel despair after all the lessons of the past 12 years, after the war in Afghanistan, where the U.S. spent about $30 million per Al-Qaeda operative, of which they estimated there were about 100 in the country, spent about $30 million per Al-Qaeda, and, and still really only <laughs> caught a few of them, if we can even believe that any of them were caught, who knows? We don't believe anything these people say. After the horror of what happened in Iraq, after the unbelievable devastation that occurred in Fallujah, white phosphorus depleted uranium to the point where geneticists who study what has happened to the Fallujah population say that it is the most genetically wrecked, genetically wrecked, not individually murdered, but genetically wrecked population that has ever been studied. Half the babies born after the Fallujah attack in 2007 were born with birth defects. Significant birth defects. You can just have a look for pictures if you don't want to hang on to a huge amount of your lunch. It's horrendous. After the lessons that the press swore that they weren't going to repeat after the Iraq war. Who's even bringing up in the mainstream media that the president is allying himself with terrorists and therefore, under the definition of U.S. law and U.S. policy, is himself a terrorist, can't bring that up, right? Can't be mentioned. It can't be mentioned even that the policy has changed. You can't ask for a formal definition change, definitional change in the policy. You understand? This is how insane we've become. In 1984, they said, we are now at war with East Asia. We have always been at war with East Asia. The second part is the clue that something has changed. We don't even have the second part of that sentence anymore in this disintegration of our brains that is casting as fine a dust around our heads as Saturn's rings. We don't even have that second part. The press has learned nothing. We have learned nothing. We have simply become progressively more disintegrated because the horror of the system that we sweat, groan, bleed, and die under has become so great that all we do is take refuge in distractions. All we do is escape into the imaginary, into the made-up, into the scripted, into the fictional, into the pixelated, into the invisible. We have abandoned the world that we are supposed to have defended 
for our children, that our children rely upon us to defend. We have given up. We have faded away. We have collapsed. We have turned ourselves into ghosts in order to escape the bloody sun of our rising awareness of where we are and what we are doing as a species to each other, to our children, to the future. We, of course, this makes it much easier for us at the moment, but what our children are going to have to deal with if we don't change, if we don't wake up, if we don't start demanding even a modicum of integrity or at least pointing out a deviation in policy from those around us, from our leaders, from our rulers. If it's so hard for us that we can't bear to stand tall, to stand straight and speak truth to power, if it is so unbearable for us, then we've given up on the future completely because it's not going to be any easier in the future than it is now, you understand. To speak the truth about our system, to speak the truth about our addiction to violence, to speak the truth about the psychotics who rule us, the evil unreality of those in power and all of their huddled and typing minions and their bleating and broadcasted lackeys. It's not going to get any easier tomorrow. It's not going to get any easier the day after tomorrow. And it sure as hell isn't going to get easier when my daughter becomes an adult. The weight that we're throwing off is only going to land with ever greater heaviness on the next generation. So we better damn well take a verbal stand with integrity now. Now. The weight that we want to throw off is only getting heavier. So we need to carry it now. We need to carry it now. We must carry it now. Well, that's it for my introduction, Mike, if you would like to bring up the next caller. All right, Sam, you're first up today. Go ahead. Hi, Steph. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. That's quite the intro. It's a tough act for, for your callers to follow. So um, I was hoping we could have a little look at the non-aggression principle. Oh, excuse me, non-aggression principle. Let's have a little. Um, look. Yeah, if it's a if it's a principle, sh surely it should be universal and apply to everything. You, you, would you agree with that statement? Well, I would say that the theory should be universally applicable, for sure. Now, can the theory be applied to and can it be defined and applied in every conceivable situation? No, right? So, so to take an analogy, uh, you know, the physician's motto, do no harm, is a universal, right? We should not have physicians plotting to, say, remove half a baby's penis or something like that. But, Indeed. But does that mean that it is clear and unambiguous in every conceivable situation? Well, no. Right? So in, in individual situations, there can be complexities, but in um, – you know, the, the, the implementation of uh, ethical standards is sort of like engineering as opposed to physics. Like in physics, or it's really engineering as opposed to mathematics. So in mathematics, you have these universal rules. When it comes to applying them in the real world, there are times where even with the best of intentions, even with the best of planning, stuff can happen. You say, oh, well, I'm going to build this bridge so that it doesn't fall down, and then some fault that in the tectonic place that can never have been anticipated causes the bridge to fall down because there's a massive earthquake there where there'd never been an earthquake before or something, right? So I just want to point out that the first test is can the theory be universalized in the abstract? And then you can look at the vast majority of cases where it can be enacted and say, is it comprehensible? Is it applicable? 
And then what people do is they say, well, I can think of some bizarre, weird, extremist potential space alien situation where the NAP may not be, you know, and then, but that doesn't, you know, you can always picture a situation where a bridge falls down. I built the bridge out of the strongest materials. It's been bolted nine miles into the rock. And there's, well, what if an asteroid, <laughs> a third the size of the moon, hits the bridge? Well, then the bridge is going to, right? You know what I mean? So uh, so I think that's sort of, I want to be, be clear about that. Um, so uh, it, it certainly, as, as a theory, uh, it must be universalizable. I agree. Well, my, uh, my, hyp- my, hep- my hypothetical is not quite so hypothetical. Um, certainly in the areas around where I live, it's it can be a bit rough at times. Um and as someone who's been studying martial arts for a while, I was always told it's better to be tried by 12 than carried by 6. If you think someone's going to initiate the use of force against you, even if they haven't given you anything empirical yet, um, it's better to strike first. Get in there, smoke them, be done. Uh-huh. And that's something, that's something I, I, I can agree to. So the next the next step for me there is does that mean I do not agree with the non-aggression principle or is there can it be improved? I'm sorry, how does that violate the non-aggression principle? Well, I, I would be the initiator of force. They haven't used force against me yet. I suspect they may. Well, hang on. <laughs> The suspect they may, it, that's a pretty rolling standard, right? So if somebody's running at you with a chainsaw, right, then you can I'm shoot them in the leg. More yeah, of course. I'm thinking more loud, um, being loud and aggressive. Not any intention of violence shown physically, but uh, giving you enough verbal and body language clues that you might suspect well, you just, them. To no, be... but you would just you just leave, right? Um, that's not always an option. Well, now if they bar you from leaving, then they've initiated force, right? Hmm. Right, so if, if a bunch of guys are standing around you, if a, if a bunch of guys are standing around you and they're verbally taunting you or whatever, right? Like they're saying to me, you have so little hair, that's not a forehead, that's a five head or whatever it is, right? So, so if they're circling you and then you say, uh, and you're in a bar or something and you say, I would like to leave, could you please stand aside? And you start walking forward and they block your exit? Well, now they've initiated force, right? I can see your point. Perhaps I perhaps I don't want to leave. Perhaps I have I feel I have a right to, to remain in that location and I, I do not want to be intimidated by morons. What what when, at what point does it become Well no, look my if error? you if you have if you have the chance to leave a violent situation and you choose to stay, then it becomes more ambiguous, right? I mean obviously you have a right to stay in the bar, blah 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 blah, right? And if they're in your house, then you don't have to leave your house. <laughs> Right? I mean, yeah, there's course. a law in the – I think – I can't remember where. I think it's in Florida. But there's a law basically which says anyone who enters your house against your will, you assume that they're going to kill you. You, you act on the assumption that they're going to kill you and, and no jury can find otherwise, right? In other words, it's as if they had a gun to your head. So obviously if you're in a place which is yours and your, your car, you also run out of your car and so on. But if you're, uh, if you're in a situation where you could leave mm. – then, and, and the person has not physically aggressed against you, then you are initiating force. Even if they're taunting and, and even if they're, right, whatever, right? I mean, verbal taunts are obviously not the initiation uh, of force. But um, uh, so if you're in a situation where you could leave and you strike when the other person has not uh, specifically indicated an imminent attack, then um, then I, I mean, the other guy is a jerk, right? <laughs> and he's not exactly uninvolved in the situation, but I think that would be um, 
that would be uh, a pretty tricky, right? I mean, so, uh, you know, a, a, a girl, a woman having a fight with her boyfriend or whatever, and he's like, uh, oh, man, I could just kill you sometimes, and she shoots him in the head. Um, <laughs> that obviously is uh, a bit extreme of a response. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Well, I had a, I had a solution to this. I thought maybe you, we could uh, have a little look at that, which sure. was – so I was looking to uh, propose perhaps a relative aggression principle. A definition might go something along the lines of it's morally inexcusable to present aggression greatly exceeding that which you perceive to be or perceive to be in receipt of, or others if you happen to be defending them. Well, no, but perceived to be in receipt of, you're talking about situations where you're not in receipt of any physical aggression, right? No, but you perceive to be to be if you are. Because there's a lot more to aggression than just is it physical, is it verbal. There's body language indicators, how they're posturing themselves, how they position themselves. There's a there's a lot of factors. It's it's not so. Calm oh, listen, and dry. Yeah, look, look, sorry. Just just to be clear, if a guy if a guy drops into a a Bruce Lee fighting position and says he's going to knock your head off, right? Then he's he's imminent. He, like it's like if the guy pulls the gun out, you don't have to wait for him to shoot it. And if a guy, you know, sort of drops into a fighting position and says I'm going to, you know, kick your ass up and down the street then obviously you can attack him, right? Preemptively, so to speak, right? And that is recognized from both, you know, common law to international law. You don't have to wait for the country to invade. You can, you know, if the troops are amassing on the border, uh, you can go in uh, and do your airstrikes or whatever it is that you're going to do. Uh, so uh, imminent aggression is, I think, well recognized. It is, of course, a tricky uh, situation. Mm. And, Especially uh, when the language isn't verbal or as obvious as adopting a fighting position. Well, yes, but of course, the other question is too, the other question is too, uh, is um, to what degree are other people there, right? So if other people are there, what you would generally do, I think in a sort of peaceful system uh, or a voluntary system, what you would generally do is you would canvas everyone and, and you would say, did you think that there was about to be a fight? Did you think that this guy acted, like did he just haul off and punch someone who looked at him funny or was the guy basically about to attack and if the majority of people said oh yeah that guy was was totally gonna i mean my hackles went up my heart started pounding i mean i felt like somebody had loosed a tiger in the room then i think that if enough people had the same response or reaction then i think you'd be in the clear now if nobody else is around then it doesn't really matter <laughs> right because you can say anything you want i mean assuming you killed the guy right uh, then you know you can say anything you can say anything you want and, and nobody really can contradict you um, so uh, so that's sort of a again there would be certain challenges involved but um, so I think that there would be a, a sort of canvassing of the collective experience to sort of back up and if everybody else said oh the guy was completely peaceful he just looked up and said uh, hey move it jerk or something you know the guy just popped his head off or whatever uh, then um, I think that would be a, a way of validating your experience. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, but it's it's not necessarily just about um, legal repercussions. It, it's about sort of a question I have for my own moral sanity, because it's it, it's a it's a tricky one getting through life in in the pursuit of of moral excellence. Like I wake up every day thinking, how can I be a better person today? I don't. I'm not looking to just coast through. And uh -huh. this is just one of the questions that came up up for me was was is there is there a better way than just saying it's it's always wrong? Can we? Sorry, to be more to be more specific, can can we have a a, more, a clearer definition of what's morally acceptable? Because no, the non-aggression. No, no. Listen, you excellent. can't. I mean, yeah, exactly. You you can't because you're looking at the gray area of predicting aggression, 
and you know we hope that people will be right gut instincts have a lot to do with this you know we have really good instincts about aggression and so on um but there are some people who go through life uh, seemingly from one fight to another yeah. Now, are they completely innocent? They're just, oh, it's bad luck. You know, I keep getting people that keep getting into fights, right? Uh, whereas I've never been in a fight. <laughs> I plan to go to my grave in that exact same, uh, with that exact same bat- batting of zero. So yeah. um, in terms of moral excellence, you know, my question is, why are you living in a neighborhood which is dodgy? I live with my parents. I'm only 23. I'm not far out of uni and there is no housing in this country that's affordable. <laughs> UK, right? So um, there's no, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah. There's nowhere to go. It is so crowded over here. It is unbelievable. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, you know, hopefully you came up with some degree that's going to give you or some skills, or you have some skills or some goals that give you some remuneration. But um, of course, you can always get out of of England, uh, or you can. I'm sure that things are quite cheap in small villages in Dorset, or <laughs> something like that. Maybe yeah, where you I hear Canada's place. nice. Yeah, it's pretty nice. It's pretty nice. You know, we, we sort of accidentally parachuted into a fairly decent situation. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so I mean, the, the, you know, I, I've, to me, prevention is always better than cure, obviously. And uh, if you can not be in neighborhoods where there's lots of fights, if you can not be in situations where there's lots of fights, if you can not um, – I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to be intimidated and walk out. You know, I, you know, I had a theory sort of when I was younger that, you know, it's better to have some teeth broken than to suffer with the ignominy, uh, the uh, negative repercussions emotionally of, of walking away. Uh, but I don't. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was a teenager. I don't, I don't really believe that anymore. I mean, if somebody wants to have a fight, I mean, I'm perfectly happy to, uh, to walk away. I remember reading about Marlon Brando got into some fist fight with the, what was the paparazzi at the time and just punched him in the, in the face. And the guy literally spent 10 years in and out of dentists trying to get his jaw fixed, his teeth fixed. Um, you know, it, it was in blinding pain. Uh, I know he sued the guy and all that, and I'm sure he got some money or whatever. But, you know, it's sort of bad things can happen in a fight that are entirely uh, unexpected. Oh, cool. Somebody could be armed. Uh, you know, there's lots of times where a guy just, you know, pushes one guy off a bar stool. He goes back off the bar stool, cracks his head, you know, on the bar and dies. And then, fuck, you're, you're in jail for 30 years. Yay. But at least you've got your pride. You know? So a, a fight is it's like a hand grenade rolled into a room. I mean, you, you never know what's going what's gonna to come out of it. Or you never know what you know, psychotic demons might lie beneath the, the fists of the guy. You know, suddenly you're his rapey grandfather or something, and uh, you know, all bets are off. And um, so, yeah, it is a... Uh, it's a chilling situation. I mean, the Zimmerman thing is sort of one example of that. So, yeah, I think just trying to be out of situations where any kind of fights can occur, I think, is, is the best. Or just walking away. Yeah, no, I do. I do a fairly good job nowadays. Not not so much when I was uh, I was younger. But uh, I, I have select group of friends and select, select places which are not quite so uh, fisty. Right. Good. But, uh, it's... Uh, it is, it is a sad fact of life. It's something we may all have to face at some point. And I wanted to be mentally prepared for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, think, um, I think just, you know, a dedication to not being in that position, I think, is, is just really important. A de- I mean, a de- you know, just don't go to the dodgy areas. Don't go to the dodgy bars. Don't hang out with the dodgy people. Don't, you know, if, if there seems to be even a whiff of trouble, just leave the situation. I mean, th- I don't know. I, I don't sit there in the morning saying, how am I going to be mentally prepared for my next fist fight? 
um, you know, unless I turn into the Fight Club guy and start punching myself, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I suppose. I think it's probably a time of different points in, in people's lives thing as well. It's probably a factor. No, there. no, no, no. Listen, I mean, uh, I grew up in a very rough neighborhood and um, in a variety of rough neighborhoods, both in England uh, and, and in Canada. It was all low rent, single moms, loony kids, uh, uh, dangerous kids. I mean, I grew up in that whole environment. And, you know, managed to make it the whole way through without getting in any fights. I mean, I had a friend who, who, you know, basically something happened with him and the biggest kid in school. And they, they arranged to have a fight. And there was a fight after school. And they were going to show up and have a fight. And I, I can't honestly for life remember what happened. But, I mean, I, uh, I, mean, I remember one time there was a, I was playing a defender at the bowling alley, which is now defunct in Don Mills. And... Uh, some guy came along and unplugged the machine because I was doing really well and he wanted to play. He unplugged it and plugged it back in. And, you know, I called him a jerk or something like that and stormed off in a sort of 12-year-old huff. And um, he had an older brother who was just nuts. Uh, you know, cold-eyed, dangerous, had a whiff of predator coming off him like a stink bomb. And he's, I was walking down, like up the stairs, and he was walking down the stairs, and he punched me in the shoulder and said, you're dead, man, for what you did to my brother or whatever. I guess maybe his brother was acting out some frustrated Napoleon complex and getting his dad to do that beat up other guys for him kind of thing. And, you know, I, I worried about it and, you know, oh, my God, I, you know, what's going to happen? And I just I kept out of the guy's way. And, you know, if I'd see him, I'd go somewhere else or whatever it is, right? I once even ducked into the girls' washroom. <laughs> That's the level of avoidance that, that I had. Was that, was that the only reason? Yeah, let's go with that. And, um, <laughs> and, and nothing ever happened. And actually, years later, I met the guy uh, at, at a friend's place. And, yeah, he didn't remember me at all. Seemed pretty nice. Um, and, again, it's, you know, it's, but it's so, I mean, I, and a couple of different times I got targeted. by. But you just avoid. You just minimise. You, uh, you just steer clear of it. And, I, anyway, I mean, maybe I was just lucky or whatever, but I'm pretty good at And, of course, I was pretty funny too, right? So um, I was pretty, pretty well-liked uh, in my school. Uh, I did, like, lots of <laughs> kind of goofy, uh, funny things. Like, I showed up uh, in my high school one day with a a, uh, it's a little outfit that my, my brother and I had, had stitched together, which is where you've probably seen something like it. You have, like, your legs become the ostrich legs, and then you sew a pair of pant legs on the side uh, so that it looks like you're riding an ostrich. Uh, and you sort of put these white stockings on and stuff like that. And we went in and oh, I went in and sort of dressed like that and went <laughs> and like they do that to school. Had some pictures in the yearbook from it and stuff like that. And uh, pretended to be having an ostrich race at the cafeteria. You know, just stuff. So I was pretty, I was pretty, I, I would like go down to Goodwill and pick up like the tackiest, gnar- nastiest, you know, sp- spilt condiments, herb tonic, polyester suits that you could imagine and show up uh, in school. Once I showed up uh, when it was the UN uh, day for like income disparity uh, i put a tuxedo top uh, all down to the nines put a tuxedo top on top and then like a pair of jean shorts and and sandals and people are like well what are you doing it's like well the bottom half of me is poor and the rich half of me is rich and i just wanted to you know so people kind of got it i was sort of like a little uh, attention whore slash entertainer slash thought provoker when i was in high so people kind of like me and so it generally didn't seem to be a big you know let's get staff kind of thing and uh, so again that's just different strategies that you could do to sort of stay away from that. But I just want to point out that it's not because I grew up in some privileged gated community or anything that I never ran into any of this kind of stuff. You just do what you can to see clear of it. Sure, sure. No, it's fairly solid advice, for sure. Um, so what do you think about 
our, our perception of aggression because our most most of what humans do is based on our perception and it varies so wildly from person to person. Do you care to cast any comments on that? I'm not sure what the question is. Our perception of aggression? I mean, that sounds like something I could pour anything I wanted into. Well, um, so let's 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 uh, let's take a, a an example here. So, let's say there's someone's trying to cut you off in traffic, right? Yeah. You've got if it's an old guy, chances are you're not going to react as hostilely to them as if it's uh, a young young lad in a cabbed up whatever uh, with a massive exhaust system and drum and bass pouring out the windows. Right. Because we perceive aggression so differently based on who it is, what they're doing, what the circumstances are. Right. And would you care to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I I sort of understand that. I mean, the only time I've ever actually wished I had a bazooka is when guys come through with really souped up, unbelievably loud motorcycles and go like down the main street. Like to the point where your chest rumbles and your ears half bleed, I consider that such an invasive act of aggression. It's one of the few times where I feel genuine rage. I do feel quite angry at people who drive carelessly because it's just such a dangerous thing to do. It is such a dangerous thing to do. And of course, you know, I mean, the police is completely useless. I remember walking with Christina when we were still dating up young in Eglinton as a sort of street in Toronto. And some motorcycle went speeding up way too fast. And this is the only time in my life I've ever seen this. Some cop car actually went after him. And the whole the whole street cheered. Like, yeah, you go get this motherfucker, basically, right? Who's, you know, kids cross these streets. I mean, you, you, you know, you can get someone killed. You know, people who drunk drive. So I, I do sort of and, – and the old people, too. You know, like, know when you can't drive a car anymore, you idiot. You like, know when you're too old, right? And so uh, I do. I do feel that, and it is you know the carelessness and and so on is is definitely a form of uh, of aggression. Uh, you don't have to have concentrated malevolence in order to cause people irreparable harm. So yeah, I do feel uh, I do feel angry uh, at that kind of stuff. But the reality is that I know that there are really shitty drivers out there. Mm. You know, like so. Whenever I'm turning, if someone has their signal on, I never assume that they're actually going to turn. I mean, that signal could have been on for three blocks for all I know. I never assume that they're going to turn. Uh, you know, when, whenever I'm taking a left, um, or sorry, whenever I'm coming into an intersection and somebody on my sort of front left is, is one, wants to make a, a left turn from his standpoint, I, I always have my foot on the brake. Like, I assume at some level that he's just going to try and do it, even if, though it's the most retarded thing he can possibly do. Whenever I take a left uh, on a sort of semi-highway, I assume that there's a great possibility that somebody is going to try and pass me <laughs> while I'm making a left. So I check my rearview mirror, make sure it's signaled, make sure everyone's slowing down behind me, no one's cutting around. And if there's any hesitation, I simply go to the next intersection and take my left there. Right. So I always assume that everyone is on their cell phone. I always assume that everyone's you know, masturbating with a kumquat while trying to drive. I always assume that there are bad drivers out there. And, and given that that's a reality... I mean, I'm an incredibly defensive driver. Like, I've never been in an accident. Yeah. And so it's my responsibility, because I know there are bad drivers out there, to really focus on being a very careful driver, which is why I spent a lot of time driving while holding a microphone in one hand. <laughs> but I was being very careful while I was doing that. But um, so, so, yes, it, it does make me angry. But if I forget that there are bad drivers, then I'm probably going to end up more angry at myself. Sorry, go ahead. 
I think I think you misinterpreted my question slightly there. I meant I didn't. I, the uh, the driving example was was more of a um, allude to circumstance. So where the where the older guy is is less of a threat physically. Oh, older guys are huge threats. I mean, uh, hu- no, older guys, older guys. Oh no, are no, huge no, sorry, not 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 is it not in no, the context of driving? Just no, 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 politically, <laughs> because older guys always vote to take money away from the young, right? How's your future looking, right? What's your national debt looking like? How much money is being pillaged from your meager savings and, and income to pay for the retirees of civil se- civil servants who are you know retiring to at the tune of forty or fifty thousand quid a year, right? So I consider old people uh, extraordinarily dangerous because it seems that they're just continually addicted to voting more and more benefits for themselves at the expense of the young, uh, and the concept of <laughs> any kind of self sacrifice has entirely gone out the window, and they've just turned into these brain-eating zombies of <laughs> ancientness. And so uh, I, I consider them uh, enormously dangerous. We have an enormous problem with that over here. We have tra- I don't know if you have trade unions in Canada, but... Uh, oh, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the NHS over here is... They're always striking, always looking for more pay. And rather than getting paid... And they, they probably should be pay more, paid more. I mean, they are medical professionals, after all. They, they get more in a private system, for sure. But... Uh, Oh, the point is, we have them. no idea how much we have no idea how much people in the public sector should be paid. We have no idea. We, they could be paid a lot more. They could be paid a lot. Who knows? We'd have no idea because, of course, in a in a in a free market system, the whole point would be to prevent health problems, not cure them. Whereas the whole point of a government system is they get money from curing or from maintaining people on drugs or from expensive surgeries. They don't make any money from prevention. Insurance companies make money from prevention, but uh, government systems make money from. Uh, disastrous, which is why they continually make more of them. Indeed, indeed. But they 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 strike looking for more pay, and they're uh, they're palmed off with better pensions. Sure, and every, pensions every are great. time. Every pensions time. are great because yeah, current you don't politicians have to pay don't for it have now. to pay for them. Yeah, it's beautiful. Kick that can down the road. Uh, it's wonderful. So, yeah, no, I mean, I consider the elderly to be among the most dangerous uh, members uh, of of society for the young, in particular. Uh, I mean, it's just brutal. And, of course, the bill is, is yet to really come due. But it sure as hell will over the next five or ten years. Yeah, I don't look forward to that either. Slightly sidetracked again, though. <laughs> um, okay, listen, we've got to get on to another caller because we've had a good old chat. Uh, no problem. Uh, and I want to make sure we get to everyone who's patiently waiting on the line. But it's a great question, and I'm sorry if I swung and missed a few times, but um, uh, I've had a coffee. <laughs> so uh, thanks for your call, and please feel free to call back anytime. Nice to talk to you, Steph. Have a lovely evening. Take care. Thank you. All right, Brian, you're up next. Go ahead. The man they called Brian. Yes, my friend, what's up? Well, uh, before we get started, I just want to thank Michael for setting this up and thank you, Stefan, for taking the time out of your evening to listen to my question. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, well, um, so I have quite a situation going on here, and... Uh, I've quite a history, so I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. But you know, feel free to interrupt me uh, if you find something that you know is uh, is pressing to talk about. But um, so basically, I, I've been in chronic pain for the last four and a half years. Gosh, I was a competitive athlete. I played goalie in hockey, and um, you played oh goalie in hockey, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. And uh, I was a career athlete, and 
I, I quit when I was 18, but uh, later on in my life, I'm 27 right now. So when I was 22 or 23, I started experiencing hip pain and it was not severe enough. My hip pain was not severe enough to be taken seriously for two and a half years. Wow. So but, it's more uh, like an ache kind of thing? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then... Uh, Sorry, why did you quit when you were 18? Did you not able to transition to pro or... I was not emotionally or mentally mature enough to keep playing. All right. So you you so you had the skills, but you didn't uh, have the emotional, whatever X factor to continue. Yeah, I mean, sports is is fun until it becomes a career, but then it's not about having fun anymore. And um, I wasn't able to. I didn't have the skills to cope with that at eighteen. Right. So, yeah, so I, I mean, the life of professional athletes is is pretty rough. I mean, there's the, what this some soccer player just got 175 million dollars because you know guys who kick balls way more important than philosophers. <laughs> I mean, it's just the world we live in. Right. Way. What can you do, right? But um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, it's it's pretty rough. And I mean, the 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 second half of of the lives of pro athletes is you know almost unrelentingly horrifying. I mean, just in terms of the physical damage that they've sustained and, and the money that they've blown through and the lack of skills for anything else that they've achieved. But anyway, uh, go on. Yeah, well, I mean, that's pretty much where I'm at. I mean, over the course of those two years, my hip symptoms got a lot worse where I, was, I had to stretch a minimum of five hours a day just to be able to sleep at night. And it was it really interrupted my life. I mean, my life unmanageable. So uh, probably... Almost two years ago, I had an MRI arthrogram, and I had a torn ligament in my hip socket, okay. in my right hip socket. So uh, without that ligament keeping my femur in, in place, in my acetabulum, my hip was dislocating. And um, so that was what I had going on. And um, that's something that doesn't heal by itself. So I had, a, I had a surgery done in March 27th of 2012. And they reattached the, uh, was it, was it, it wasn't torn completely. It was just torn like half a rope tear, right? Um, well, it ended up being much different when they got inside. There was fragmented bone, there was fragmented cartilage. It was, it had, it was peeled off the lining of my acetabulum and they found a significant amount. Right. So the cushion that allows the joint to kind of move in sort of some relatively friction free environment was all compromised and junked up with crap right yep that's right oh, man i'm so sorry and this came out of hip checks and so on in hockey right because this this sort of slamming into the side is uh is a big part of the game right and, no, it, and into the walls right i never, I never oh, got not for the goalie right right but i guess it doesn't really matter how it happens it just is that it happened right so well sorry but it was so it wasn't one hit that you remember it was just some accumulation no. of Nope. Right, because goalies do get hit, right? I mean, people skate into them by accident or whatever, right? Yeah, there tends to be fights after that, so uh, I was relatively pretty safe on the ice. But yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's a contact sport. All right. So yeah, in any, in any in any event, yeah, I mean, that never really, I never really got better. I found out I had a tear in my left hip. I had another right hip arthroscopic surgery. You know, the cartilage damage in my hip was so severe that. I was told if I was 50, I would need a total hip replacement. And um, so the next surgery I had was on September 29th of 2012. And the surgeon I had, he was really trying to 
allow me additional spacing in between the head of my femur and the acetabulum where the cartilage damage was taking place. And so he did a pre-dressive revision and, um, it's really, it's really changed my life. Um, I wasn't able to walk for eight months. I was bedridden for four of those months. And then I was on narcotic medication for six of those months. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a hell of a heal, right? I mean, it's it's as long, slow, painful healing. Plus, of course, you got to do your rehab during it, which is, I imagine, teeth grittingly horrible. No, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, my yeah. as a result of that surgery, my my uh, my leg would slip out of my socket on a regular basis, and I mean, I was on crutches for like eight months, and right. I didn't think I'd ever walk again. Wow, and things are better now. Um, no, things are, things are not better. I, uh, you know, I ended up consulting with like 15 or 20 different physicians and actually signed up for an experimental uh, procedure. I had to fly out of the country. I ended up signing up for stem cell injections in my, in my joints, in my hip sockets in order to rebuild the connective tissue and the cartilage. And the U S FDA has deemed it illegal to culture stem cells for over 48 hours. Even though they're my stem cells, I mean, I'm not like, I didn't like collect chickens at someone's farm. I didn't like murder babies to get the stem cells. I mean, they were extracted from my bone marrow. You know what I mean? Huh. And uh, so, yeah, I was injected with stem cells. And, um, you know, I mean, there's so many nitty gritty details. I'll, I'll spare you and everyone listening a lot of those details. But, you know, the reason why I'm calling is because this has been a close to two year experience for me. And I've been out of work, I've been out of school. You know, and yeah. it turns out there's a, a component in my back that is resulting in my hip pain. Yeah. I have torn uh, ligament in my, I have torn disc. I have bulge disc. It's it's a, it's a wreck. And um, you know, I spent I spent forty thousand dollars these past five months on medical bills alone. So I mean, I I got a whole lot more concerns than I'd ever want to have. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, look, I just, I just before we move on, I mean, that is that is a brutal price to pay, and you know, I mean, this is a lesson that that you don't see a lot of. I mean, you see young athletes in their prime, and they, you think, oh, they're so fit, they're so healthy, and so on. But you know, depending on the sports, and most sports have at least some level of of impact and trauma and stress. Uh, sports as they're sort of currently played not not really what the human body was designed for. I mean, some of them are more obvious, like Muhammad Ali can, you know, speak out of one nostril or whatever the hell because he's got so much brain damage from having his uh, brain punched around his his skull for, for, for decades. But... I mean, knee problems among football players, uh, back and hip problems among football players, uh, knee problems and hip problems and back problems among uh, hockey players, uh, knee problems uh, among uh, and he and, and ankle problems among soccer players are huge, and uh, it is it is a it's a high risk occupation, and the, the risk, of course, is that you end up with these chronic debilitating injuries that there don't seem to be a whole lot of medical, medical miracles, miracles to help with. So I just, I really want to say, like, I'm incredibly sorry that your body has been damaged in this way and that it's, it is such an interference with anything you want to be doing. You're a young guy, you want to be out there conquering the world and stuff, you know, not counting your toes for the 40th time that minute, right? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's pretty much it. And, 
it's just been a it's been a real game changer for me. Um, yeah, and I just can't get out of this funk. I'm like totally depressed, and I don't find any joy, excitement in life anymore. Now sure. I feel socially isolated. You know, I told you about my financial insecurities, and I mean, I have fears like you wouldn't believe now. And you know, I've been listening to your your podcast and i mean you really are a bright spot in my days uh, when you upload so i really appreciate it um but i know that you've been struggling with cancer and i mean it's apples and oranges but there's they're both fruit and so i was hoping that well look frankly I'd, I'd rather have what i'd rather have what i had than what you have so i mean no you know i hope you get that because what i had was like well i'm pro like i'm gonna get better i'm gonna die now, it's not like – but a life of chronic pain and chronic uncertainty, it's, it's the no end in sight. Uh, you didn't mention sort of what happened with the stem cells. I mean my, my understanding, which is pretty rudimentary, is that stem cell research, although it looks great in a Petri dish, has not actually produced anything of, of any significant medical value uh, as yet. Uh, and um, how did it go with the stem cells? It's um – it's changed things for me. It's I've have better mobility. There are better positions. I can I can walk for about two hours and I can sit for about thirty minutes. So that's a big difference from having to pretty much spend the majority of my days on my back. So that's been a blessing. I mean, I can't tell you how great it is to be able to walk. I mean, there's something that I had no idea that there's something to be grateful for. But oh yeah, yeah. I'm so I'm a big fan of of the breathing that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Like I still enjoy that every day. Like, hey, you know what's not happening is me not breathing. That's that's a really good thing. Uh, so, um, yeah, I uh, I get that. How how things that you take for granted uh, just become a- amazing when you've gone through uh, something debilitating. So, yeah, I get that. Not you know, not throwing up is always a daily plus. Uh, you know. I'm I'm going through puberties in ways I won't even describe here. Uh, re-going through puberty, I've never felt younger. Uh, but you know, all the hair's growing back and all that. It's uh, well, not all of it, but <laughs> I guess all that was there before. So uh, yeah, I, I really get it. I mean, it is uh, you. You don't want to learn these blessings through these kinds of traumas, but you know, they are a uh, a sweet spot uh, in the cloud, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Now, what what is the case with um, with your social life? Well, I've uh, I moved in with my parents because um, oh, sure, yeah, of course, right? Yeah, a smarter decision for me. As I, I see that you start selling on, kidneys on eBay, right? So yeah, right. So I mean, my social life is pretty much my parents and my brother, and I'm not really able to get out a whole lot. And so my social life, I mean. The communication with my, I have one parent where I have really good communication, well, better communication. That's my mom. And then the other relationships I have, you know, it's like I had other people in my life that I would interact with. And these people I can interact with on the phone, you know, I can, I can call them. And, um, but because I spend time with my parents all the time, my brother all the time, you know, there are other things that I need to talk about besides just fluff. You know, and when everything was going cuckoo kachoo in my life, I was able to talk, you know, at infinitum about sports, about the weather, about this new sure. shirt you got on, you know, about shoes, about whatever you want. But now that I'm like, 
just miserable and very, very depressed. I have a really hard time participating in fluff. Sure. So my relationships are really, I mean, it's got to be taxing for my family. I mean, I know it's taxing for my family to see their, you know, my their brother or their son in the condition that I am oh, right it's now. it's heartbreaking, I'm sure. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. This is not, of course, what any parent wants for their kid, right? I mean, you raise your kids with the expectation they're going to go out into the world and hopefully do some reasonably great stuff. And, uh, I mean, it's got to be, I mean, obviously it's hell for you, but it's obviously emotionally difficult for, for those around you. I mean, everybody just wants it to be done. Everybody just wants to sort of have it over with and move on. But, you know, the problem with this kind of chronic stuff is, you know, it's really hard to tick the done box, right? Because it, it's uncertain, it's, it's wavering, it's back, and then it's not back. And, uh, yeah, no, I... I get it. It's it's all consuming, but it's also something that you get tired of talking about and dealing with. So then what the hell are you supposed to talk about? You don't have much else going on, but you're tired of this, so the rest is silence, right? Yeah, that was very difficult. And then I mean it's great talking with my mom because she's actually done some work on herself. So she doesn't have as many skellies in her closet. She's not carrying a huge monkey on her back of emotional baggage that she's been carrying around. So we can engage in you know, some meaningful conversation, you know, to a point. But I don't know, man. I just, things have things have changed for me, you know, and, you know, I have insomnia. I, I just don't feel, I don't feel right anymore. And I just miss, I really just miss my life. And yeah, I know you, <laughs> I don't even know why I'm even calling in it's not like you can just fix my health for me right now i'm just like out of options and people to go to and i don't know how to get help anymore you know oh god you're you're so out of options you're calling this show holy shit i'm sorry oh that's tragic i'm kidding um yeah that's now is there anything that you can do that engages your mind to the point where you get that kind of sweet relief of the out-of-body experience like you you get so absorbed in something like, I mean, this is a stupid example, but, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of exercise, though I've been doing it three times a week for 30 years, right? I just, it's just one of these stupid ass, mate, like nobody wants to go change the oil of the car. It's just you have to, right? And it's not, not a lot of fun. So uh, I got a, a bike machine and, and I play like little tablet games or whatever. And if I find one that's absorbing enough, I sort of currently playing Radiant Defense on, I guess it's on all three platforms of Windows, the android and the ios it's a fun game i mean, put a little pitch in for it though i'm not invested in the company in any way uh, but it's kind of absorbing and so what happens is i look up and i'm like oh my workout's done even though i'm just sort of grinding away and sweating like a pig <laughs> i do sort of like half an hour at the highest level and just call it a day and is there anything that but if i just sit there and watch the clock i mean the the, the workout would be pretty unbearable but if i get something that's absorbing enough that i can sort of forget about this grinding stupidity of moving my legs. Um, is there anything that that interests you or absorbs you enough intellectually that that takes you out of out of the moment? Yeah, I've been studying a lot of um, economics. I don't know anything about economics, so I've been learning a lot about that and history, and I've been teaching myself Spanish. And um, and does that do it? Like, does that give you some relief from the the moment? Yeah, sometimes it does. You know, I play, I you know, I'm play, I play video games now, something I never really did before. And uh, I mean, that's entertaining. I had no idea how some games I can play, some games I can't. I can't play shooting games. It's too realistic for me. 
I used to be an EMT, so. Oh, right, right. right. Yeah, so you don't want any it's, sort of. I can't uh, play Call of Duty or any of that kind of stuff. The blood splatters and all that. It's like, it gives you all these flashbacks, right? Yeah, not, yeah. I know, I know you don't mean like PTSD kind of flashbacks, but. No, no, but just, like, of, yeah, I mean, just like, why would you want to watch that if you lived it, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so you do have some things. Now, is there, th- th- this is mostly absorbing for you. So you're absorbing other people's knowledge, the economics, the Spanish, and so on. Is there anything that you think you could create that, because I'm telling you, the act of creation is astonishingly absorbing astonishingly absorbing like when i'm writing i, I used to write um at uh, at a starbucks and i sort of be in the corner having my uh, 20th cafe americano of the morning actually i only had usually two but and and sometimes somebody would recognize me come in and say hi and they could be standing there for like two minutes before i'd even noticed there was a body because, you know, I got my headphones in, I'm grinding away on my book, and I'm, you know, it's such a ferocious act of, of, you know, orgasmic production that it really is the most absorbing thing that I know of. And I sort of feel the same when I'm, when I'm podcasting. And so, is there anything that you think you might be able to do in terms of creativity that might be more of a distraction from the moment? Because, you know, your body hopefully is going to continue to get better over time with the stem cells or whatever, but there's things that you can do that you may otherwise never have done that could be really important and valuable for you. I'm sort of thinking of um, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. That's a famous writer, uh, Treasure Island and Kidnapped and so on. I mean, he started writing because he was laid up for most of his childhood literally in bed. I don't know if he had tuberculosis or some god-awful 19th century shitbox of a disease. Uh, and so he, uh, lots of people who've had these kinds of illnesses and who were laid up can uh, come up with something or some way of being or some way of doing or something that they can do that they never would have really considered other, otherwise. Is there anything that you think of? Do you like to write stories uh, or, or poetry? Would you like to write a book on your experiences? Would you write, like to write a book on economics or, or anything like that or politics or whatever it makes? Is it philosophy? Anything that's interesting to you, would you like to contribute to the world in that kind of way? Because the best narcotic is creativity as far as I've ever experienced. Yeah, it's a really good suggestion. I appreciate it. You know, I, uh, I unfortunately... Um, I don't know what I'm into anymore. I mean, uh, you know, I quit, I quit playing sports and I went to undergrad and then I dropped out and I worked for three years and then I returned to school. So I started undergrad when I was 23 and I felt like I was so behind on life and which is just goofy because, you know, here I am laid up, but I was so obsessed with my career and I was so obsessed with work and with school. I was a full-time student and I worked full-time that I didn't have any time to develop any hobbies. I mean, my hobbies were work and my hobbies were my education. And I mean, it's been a real challenge. What did you want want all of that for? I mean, geez, being a full-time student and a full-time worker, I mean, that's, Jesus, when the hell did you sleep? Yeah, no, it was, it was. So what was it so for? Much- what were you, what were you, were you saying you're obsessed with this sort of getting ahead? And what was your vision? What did you want on the other side of all that concentrated effort? What was that going to get you? Med- I got into medical school. I was, I was just starting medical school, um, three, 
Well, three. I keep deferring. So, yeah. but three three summers ago, I was to start medical school. Maybe maybe two summers ago. Right. So. Now, is that is that possible uh, in your current situation? If you didn't defer, I mean, is it possible for you to do it? Not in my current situation. Hopefully, I'll be able to be healthy healthy enough to start in January. I'm going to assume that so, it's a big passion of yours, uh, medicine and doctrine and all that. Uh, try that one more time. It was a bit choppy. Sorry. It's a it's a big passion of yours to to, I mean, the med- medicine, doctoring, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was something that I, I learned that I was interested in. I had I had many different career changes, and it took me a while to understand what it was that I wanted to do with my life. I didn't really have very, I had very, very oppressive parenting parents, you know, that uh, pretty much micromanaged all my activities for me. So by the time I left their house, I mean, I didn't have any skills on how to. So, yeah, I mean, the only thing that I can suggest, I mean, obviously you say you're not sure what you're into, but you're listening to this show, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, okay. Got so much yes. time. Me, I'd yes. like to show with the most volume. Yeah. They sort by length, and there it is. But and I also want so you're into philosophy, self knowledge, and so on. And you talked about your mom having made some positive steps towards self knowledge, uh, perhaps even as a result of some of this stuff. And I also wanted to point out that you know what's triply tragic, of course, as you say, that you had a micromanaged childhood, in which obviously you didn't feel free, uh, and then you have uh, these debilitating chronic problems uh, with your your hips and your back and so on, which is not exactly adding to your freedom. So you've lived a life where freedom is like an over-the-horizon kind of situation, right? Yeah, I mean, there yeah, there have been many different things like that. I, just, I, <laughs> I, I got a pretty fucked up life, man. <laughs> so What do you mean? I feel like I've been through my fair share of stuff, man. I just do. I just do. Yeah, I hear you. I uh, I get that. Uh, I get that twinge from time to time as well. But um, yeah, so the. I mean, look. I wish I could. Obviously, you know. I wish I could offer you some other other than sympathy, understanding, and you know, like incredible, incredible empathy for this incredibly difficult situation. The only thing I can tell you is the way that I approach it is um, uh, I try to find a way to have negative things provoke a virtue in me that otherwise would have remained unprovoked, right? So I said to myself, with the cancer, uh, I said to myself, I'm willing to go through it if on the other side I can be fearless. That's what cancer can give me as a gift. And it actually is kind of true. I'm speaking my mind more clearly and more plainly. Uh, I'm allowing my passions to reign more freely. I am trusting my impulses more deeply, my instincts more deeply. And I think that the show's quality has improved over that. I mean, it's not like you know, get cancer to up your quality. But if I can, through the process of facing a deadly disease that can recur any time, if I can 
allow that to stimulate a virtue in me that otherwise would have remained less stimulated or maybe even dormant, then, right? But I've had this wonderful fuck it thing since the cancer, which is, I don't know. You know, now mortality is not a matter of statistical averages. Like, oh, well, you know, I've got an, uh, you know, Canada 78 for men or whatever, so blah, 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 blah. Well, no, I don't, I don't have that anymore. I mean, nobody ever really does, but this is a bit of a vivid way of not having that anymore. And so for me, it, it has to be a process where I can turn something negative into the provocation of a virtue that I otherwise would not have possessed. And for yourself, I'm not talking about any particular virtues, but I would definitely explore the possibility of allowing creativity to come out of where you are. Now, I'm not saying you sort of snap your fingers and you know start writing sonnets or whatever, but you have had a pretty powerful set of experiences with this. You are facing some pretty significant demons, right, as you talk about the depression and you in particular wanted to rush to get out and into your life and now you just keep hitting these soft walls of barely manageable pain. That's that's hell. I mean, that is a, a, is a kind of soft hell. And, you know, it's, it's not as decisive as, oh, a shark bit my leg off. Okay, well, I'll put on some prosthetics and move on with my life, right? It is, uh, it's always, it's indecisive. It, it, it is, it's like a wall. You try and climb over it and it just crumbles and another one grows up, right? You're never over. You're never done. Uh, and so it's, you know, you're crossing your fingers and you, you're obsessed, right? Is it better? Is it worse today, yesterday? I don't know. I can't tell. But you're constantly testing it. It becomes your, the little sun that you orbit around, right? I got that lump yeah. in my neck for a year and I'm like, is it bigger? Is it smaller? Right? And well, you just want to be consume. free of that shit. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just corroborating what you were saying. It can consume Oh, it's all consuming. Is it better? Is it worse? Is my life going to start? Is it not going to start? Is this pain? Is just as a setback? Is this a pain because I'm walking more? Is this a pain that's going to make me walk less? I mean, your mind goes round and round and round, right? You know, one of the things you were talking about, thanks for sharing all that. You know, one of the things you that I can relate to is the dis- disinhibiting of like many of the reluctance conversations that I would have with people. But I mean, I mean, I crossed the Rubicon with a number of things that you were talking about in, um, in, in previous podcasts. And, you know, I brought up to my mom and my dad, you know, I was verbally abused, emotionally, physically abused, sexually abused as a child. And oh, God, I'm so, so I've, sorry. I've brought, I've brought all that stuff up. And um, it's, it's like... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I've always known that stuff was like happened and went on, but you know, now that I bring it up, and other than that, I wish there was a better word to use besides the derogatory word like that. But and and I'm sorry, I just I missed that word. If you could just repeat it, the word was fuck. Yeah. Yeah. No. But. Um, Yeah, so I mean, I mean, like my mom, my mom's very, very receptive about it. But like the narrative I get from my dad is like, if I wasn't such a bad kid, then I wouldn't have been hit so much. 
you know, and I, w- I wouldn't have been yelled at as much. And if he didn't hit me like he did, then I probably would have went to prison. I mean, that's like the narrative I get, you know? And so like, it becomes like, it becomes like person I don't even really want to interact with, you know? Right. And even on the topics that my dad wants to engage on, it's like, he's not really investigating the quality of the content of the words I'm using, you know? It's like he relies on ad hominem attacks and I get it. I mean, he has emotional investments in politics and in money and that's where his emotional well-being is at. And so when I bring up, you know, what I consider to be some of the facts of the financial state of the United States that, you know, I live in and some well, of the I'm facts sorry to of interrupt. the like I'm, I, I'm real sorry to interrupt because, I mean, don't yeah, get me ahead. wrong. I love a political discussion as much as the next guy, but back to the hitting. If you were to ask your father, um, how, how does he know that that's true? Like, how does he know that if he didn't hit you, or how does he know that hitting is beneficial? And how does he know that not hitting children sends them to prison? Right? So, for instance, you could mention, say, in Sweden or other places, uh, they have not, the hitting has been illegal since the 1970s. Does he consider Sweden to be a country full of rapey, murdery criminals? Like, so, under what theory? Okay. So he can say stuff, right? It's like, okay, well, I can say that the moon is banana-shaped and that the sun is made of uh, post-Indian food gas, right? I, mean, I can say anything I want, but, but what's the proof, right? So how, how do you know these things? How do you know that hitting is good? Well, I was hit and I turned out fine. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That's like saying, well, I smoked and I, I lived to a ripe old age, therefore smoking is fine, right? So how do you know? Under what, like, what facts are you referring to? I think this is important because if you stay in the realm of opinion, you can never resolve disputes. This is really important with, with all disputes. Disputes are resolved by facts. Disputes are resolved by rationality and, so, and, and evidence. So if he's making a claim, a causal claim, which is that spanking leads to – or hitting, you say, leads to beneficial outcomes and that children who are not hit – are far more likely to end up in prison, right? Well, that's a testable claim. Like, there's literally been 60, 70 years of research on this very issue. So, I mean, again, were he to be my father, I would simply say, well, on what, what, what is the basis for this claim? What, what facts do you have? What research do you have that supports this causality that, that you say? And I can guarantee you that he has none. I can no, guarantee he that he has he none. Right. But it's important that he knows. It's important that he knows he has no facts to back up this bullshit. So I, I started – oh, man. Here we go. So I started drinking when I was 11, and then I started doing drugs when I was 12. And I think the technical term is you started self-medicating due to extraordinary personal agony, right? Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, I developed an alcohol and drug addiction. I mean, I was like, full, I had a full-blown problem by the time I was like 14. And I mean, I got sober around see, 20. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, like but you mentioned the sexual abuse, and you don't obviously have to share anything you don't want to, but um, I would imagine that of, of all of this stuff, that the sexual abuse was probably most closely related to this self-medication. I, I honestly don't even know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And what was the form of the sexual abuse and who was the perpetrator? My brother, my older brother. He's two years older. Wow. And is this the brother that you still live with? 
No, he, well, he 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 just moved. We don't live, we don't live together anymore. Wow. I'm sorry about that. Gosh, that's monstrous. So, like, I mean, I have all this. I mean, and, and I mean, I don't use drugs. I don't drink anymore. I mean, I got sober when I was 20. I'm 27 now. I mean, it's all it's all done. But I mean, when I talk about my childhood, when I bring it up, I mean. <laughs> I was a delinquent when I was a teenager, so I can't even like go there. And the narrative that I'm told is that if I wasn't such a, a fuck up, then I wanted all of our holidays wouldn't have been ruined. All of our family vacations wouldn't have been ruined. And I'm just yeah. like tired of hearing that shit, you know? Well, hang on a sec. So did your parents, no. uh, and what's, what was the form of the sexual abuse at the, uh, at the hands of your brother? My brother would show off his erections, and then he would convince me to give him oral sex. Gosh. And did your family ever know anything about this at the time, or? No. And did does your family know about it now? No. Why not? That's why you're calling now, right? This is why you're calling here now. We got to it. Yeah, I don't know why, man. Yes, you do. I'm not saying you have to tell them, but you know why they don't know, right? I feel. I mean, I feel ashamed. I feel like I should have been smarter. Or, I don't know, man. No, I feel ashamed no, about no, thing. No, 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 no. Because your family's big on shaming you, so if you said something in which you felt ashamed then they would not have a huge problem with that. That's not why you haven't told them. Well, I don't think it would be a very accepting place. And I already feel like the relationship I have with my family, which is the only relationships I really have right now, they're already like Rocky because I have an interest in talking about circumstances I remember when I was hit or when I was yelled at or when I was manipulated into acting ways and behaviors that my mom or my dad didn't like. And I mean, I get, I get, they want me to talk about, they're like, you're always negative. You know, why don't you talk about some things that are positive, you know? And I just like, feel like I just want to talk about it objectively. You know, I mean, what will happen if you tell them again, I'm not saying you should, I, I can't tell you what to do, but what will happen? What do you think will happen if you tell them about the sexual abuse? Yes. Uh, I don't know. Yes, you do. <laughs> you certainly have a theory, right? This is the part of the show or the conversation where I refuse to accept that you're not smart about your family. Because if you're not smart about your family, you're not smart enough to tie your own shoelaces, right? I mean, you've had 27 years of exposure, right? It's like it's like you've lived in Vietnam since you were born for 27 years. And I, I say, well, what's Vietnam like? You say, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Well, yes, you do, right? What's your family? What's the reaction of your family going to be if you tell them? Well, my brother's going to feel like he's betrayed because I'm talking about this. My dad's Oh, yes, betrayal. Like betrayal, son. so important to protect your brother from betrayal. So important to protect a molester from feeling betrayed because betrayal, they're so sensitive to betrayal. And betrayal is such a negative thing to people who prey on children sexually. Betrayal, you see, it's such a terrible thing. It's such a negative. 
that you have to protect abusers from any feelings of being betrayed, right? Sorry to be sarcastic, but you get that that's right. No, I get it. I just have a hard time seeing that there's going to be something like a nice outcome from this. I mean, do people have nice outcomes from bringing stuff like that no, up? Let's you know? go back. Let's go back to the reactions. Forget about the outcomes. Let's go back to the reactions. Sure. So your brother's okay. going to feel betrayed and you're going to say, well, fuck you. If betrayal is yeah, such a big much. value for you, why the fuck did you betray me as a child by making me suck your dick? Right. Don't give me this, oh, betrayal is bad bullshit. Come on. There's no bigger betrayal than sexually molesting a child, particularly a younger sibling uh, who you have authority over. So don't give me this betrayal bullshit, right? But sorry, come on. So, I mean, I bet my my parents will probably be shocked. My dad will... My dad will um, probably not want to talk about it. My mom will feel sorry that it happened. Now, did your brother show any deviant or or, or perverted behaviors uh, in any other way? It's hard to believe this is just isolated, right? What do you mean? I mean, did he have any bizarre behaviors other than this? He's, he's, he ended up having an alcohol and drug problem as well. I don't doubt it. But I mean, when yeah. he was a kid. I mean, for the most part, I, I, my brother just stayed out of the way. You know, I mean, there's so much lying and manipulating going on in my childhood that I took the opposite extreme my brother did. My brother just found a way to ignore it and to pretend like everything was fine. And I took the opposite extreme. I just got honest with everything that was uncomfortable for everyone. Your brother found a way to ignore it? Yeah, he did. I really, really don't agree with that assessment <laughs> at all. I mean, Mike, I don't think you could yeah. be further off. Your brother enacted it. That's not ignoring it, right? Oh, no. No, no, no. I'm, talk I'm talking about just the chaos in my household. You don't think and your brother added to the chaos in your household by sexually molesting you? You think he was ignoring the chaos? Wasn't he a core part of it? Wasn't he a core enactor of the chaos? Wasn't he inhabited and acting out the chaos completely? And yeah, creating so. a situation of further lying and manipulation on his part and on your part? How was that ignoring I never, it? I don't know. I've never thought about it like that before. Thanks for... I mean, there's more, I mean how, wasn't, wasn't the majority of lying and manipulating at this time with this kind of abuse, wasn't the majority of the lying and manipulating happening as a direct result of your brother's sexual assaults on you? How is that ignoring it? It's like saying he's ignoring a fire by carpet bombing it with napalm. He's not ignoring the fire. He's adding to it. Yeah. So what I'm asking is, was... There any behavior? I know it's hard to say, and it's hard to. And looking back, blah blah blah. Was there any behavior that your brother exhibited that may have been any kind of warning signal to anyone else in the vicinity that something might not be all right? I'm really sorry, but I can't recall. I'm sorry. Was he aggressive in school? 
did he steal? Um, was he a bully? Um, was he overweight? Was he underweight? Was he involved in violent sports? Did he fight? Uh, you know, go through the list. Any Anything. No, I mean, he was a model student. He was my – my parents were proud of everything that my, my brother did. He was very, very popular in school. He didn't get in any fights. He did not cause any trouble at all. At home, he didn't tr- cause any trouble. He played sports also. I mean, he didn't have any physical injuries as a result of playing, but he was great on the team that he played on. And things spiraled out of control for him when he left, when he graduated high school and he left our house. And do you know why that probably was? Probably because, probably because he was being micromanaged like I was, and he probably was just as ill-equipped as I was on how to handle life. Well, that's one possibility, and I'm sure that had something to do with it. I would probably throw my dot somewhat randomly and try and hit the picture, which was that by torturing and, and molesting you, uh, he got to pour all of the crazy he had inside out uh, into you, right? Because he felt out of control and powerless and blah, 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 and therefore by exercising a brutal and vicious sexual control over you, and I'm sure it manifested itself in other ways as well, then he got to feel a whole lot saner because he got to pour all the crazy shit out through controlling and abusing you. And then when you don't, like, when the abusers run out of victims, you know what happens? They collapse. Hmm. Right? I mean, one of the reasons why an abusive husband is so desperate to hunt down and recapture a wife who escapes is he knows that he's going to go insane without someone to abuse. So, so where does that leave me? I mean, how do I bring up this conversation in a healthy and productive way without… Well, first of all, you don't need to manage the health and productivity of your family. That's not your job. That's your parents' job. Okay. Right? That's like my – I know you're not four, obviously, but it's like my daughter saying, well, okay, dad, um, you know, how am I going to pull my fair share of the rent? That's not your job. <laughs> not your job to worry about any of that, right? You have fun. You enjoy your childhood. It's mommy and daddy's job to think about finances and bills and – right? paperwork and all that stuff, right? That's not, that's not her job. And it's not your job to manage the emotional and mental health and happiness of your family. You're the kid. It's your parents' job. Right. So how, and, how do you recommend Sorry, go ahead. That, uh, I was just going to see how you recommended for me best to proceed from here then. Well, I don't, look, I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not saying you should or you should not tell them. Uh, my personal preference is just honesty no matter what. Yeah. And this is a true and powerful and shaping experience of your life, which to some degree you are still being blamed for, Right. Don't tell me, of course, you would never tell me that this didn't have an effect on the degree to which you acted out, right? Got into trouble, got into drugs. Of course, had a huge impact. 
and and also this fundamentally fucks with your sense of the world as a whole, right? So your brother was very popular, which means that you know, intrafamily pedophiles, uh, you know, people love him in society. Very popular. What does that tell you about society? And its values and its perception of exploiters and abusers. I mean, it's, it's as I say, I will say, the, 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 the experience of being abused as a child, it changes your relationship to yourself. It changes your relationship to your family. But in, in a very fundamental way, which is often overlooked, it changes your relationship to society. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, I have a hard time bringing this stuff up. Well, I don't have a hard time bringing it up, but I have a hard time bringing it up in a way that it gets heard and gets respected, you know? And, you know, I'm also trying to be respectful of, you know, I I live here now, but for the most part, I mean, I turned 18 and I got out of Dodge, you know? So. Well, and now this is the, this is the consideration, right? Which is that just, you're kind of stuck in Dodge, right? I mean, I don't know if you're in debt or, or whatever, right? You have 40000 bucks in the hole in one form or another. And obviously, you are relying on your parents' hospitality and so on. And this definitely could be, you know, this stuff is always risky. I mean, it's, it's a pin in the it's – a, it's, a, it's a grenade in the tent, right? And um, it can be a breakthrough. It can be a, a healing time for your family. It can be an understanding. It can be uh, a, a real connection. Or it can blow everything sky high. Right. So my, my suggestion my suggestion would be this. And I don't know how you can manage this or what you can do. So I'm just going to give you my suggestion. And, you know, you're a smart guy. See what, see what you can do if you agree with it to figure it out. But I would tr- even try and see a therapist a couple of times before deciding to, to broach the topic with your family or not. Like a good therapist. Somebody who's got some experience in sexual abuse, you know, particularly like sibling sexual abuse, which is depressingly common, um, and and really try and work work through it a little bit. I mean, you forty thousand bucks; it'll only be a couple of hundred bucks to see a therapist a couple of times, um, and I think it would be really crucial to uh, talk about this stuff to try and figure out best approaches. I, I mean, I'm not a therapist, obviously; I can't advise you on any of that stuff, or even whether you should or shouldn't. Right, I mean, I'd sort of hate for you to charge off this call, confront everyone in your family, and end up with your half-broken ass out on a street, right? Because that would not be a a triumph for um, your life, right? So, yeah, uh, I, I would uh, go and talk to a therapist about this and and figure out the you know if she's got or he's got any best experience about ways to to deal with it, uh, or the timing. You know, it's been twenty seven years. Is twenty seven years and a bit really going to make a big difference? <laughs> Maybe not hugely, but I would certainly write it all down. I, I would write down everything that happened. You know, some secure, keep it on an encrypted thumb drive or whatever you've got, use TrueCrypt or something to, to keep it locked. But uh, I, I would write it all down. I would get it all out, write it all down. Everything, everything you could remember. You'd be surprised at the degree to which your life can come back into, into shape and into focus. And I also believe this is complete bullshit on my part. So, you know, there's no, I don't think there's any particular proof for it. That's some sort of scientific suggestion that it's valuable. But I think that uh, honesty and directness, even if it is just with yourself and your own history, I believe it speeds the healing process. Uh, I know it's all kinds of screwed up, but um, uh, we know that stress is bad for the health. 
we also know that keeping secrets is a f- is a very powerful source of stress, and reductions in stress um, decreases cortisol, which allows tissues to repair and to heal better. So even if you just get it all talked out with yourself, if you talk it out with a therapist, whether you go to your parents or not, when or whoever, that's your decision, obviously. Uh, but I wouldn't take it in isolation. Certainly wouldn't take any advice from someone like me, but maybe somebody who's really competent in the field could help you out. But I would strongly suggest that if you take this approach, that I I I, I would. I would argue that there's strong evidence that it could really help speed the healing process. Okay. Well, Maybe that's what your body's telling you to do. Yes. Yeah, that's something about. tangible that I can do. I really appreciate that suggestion. You're very welcome. And uh, do drop me a line if you can and let me know how it goes. And listen, you know, my thoughts are really with you, brother. You are suffering as a human being at a still a relatively tender age, more than, you know, 10 lifetimes of bad people should ever suffer. And I'm incredibly sorry for all of that. And uh, I do genuinely believe that if you take the confinement and, and the pain and the lack of opportunity to focus inwards and to, to rebuild yourself and to gain the real truth about your life and your relationships – it's not like you'll ever look back and say, well, I'm really glad that happened. But you will look back, I think, and say, I, did the, I made the best possible use of all the bad things that happened to me. And that, I think, is the greatest nobility there is. Yeah. Thank, thanks. Thank you very much, Steph. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, man. Keep me posted and best of luck to you. I, I really mean that. And I'm so sorry again. Thanks, Steph. All right. Thank you for the uh, patient callers. I'm sorry that that was a long call, but... I took a while to get to the heart of the matter, as the song says. So uh, I am happy to chat with uh, whoever's next. All right, go ahead, James. Hey, Seth. Thanks for taking my call. I'm calling about relationships, essentially, and specifically romantic relationships in the confines of political beliefs. Uh, um, specifically, I subscribe to a similar set of uh, principles that you espouse, nonviolence, um, kind of a libertarian viewpoint. Um, not really big factor of statism, uh, or a big fan of statism. So I've come in, kind of come into my own in the past four years. I got married when I was really young, ended up getting divorced, and I've been, I've been single about three and a half years after that divorce. And uh, in that time, I've done a lot of self-exploration, um, kind of realized what I'm looking for. One of the things that I'm starting to look for again is another relationship. And I'm finding that my political views are not very popular. Um, huh. And I'm, I'm guess I'm trying to figure out whether I can enter in a relationship with someone who is a status because that's the majority of people. I know that it's taken me a long time to come to where I'm at to solidify my political views, um, and I'm kind of interested in your viewpoint on incorpor- this. The person that I'm dating is a um, a medical student, and she is very passionate about healthcare reform, specifically single payer option, um, on a lot of different fronts. You know, military views. Uh, she's not a fan of military. A lot of different statist activities. Even public school, which is something that I'm, I'm really not interested in. She's willing to hear that viewpoint and say, you know, I agree with you. The public school system is definitely 
you know, a major problem. But specifically on this, I mean, this is something she's very passionate about and is pursuing. And I've definitely told my viewpoints on it. And uh, I'm, I'm very interested in entering into a successful, healthy, long-term relationship. And I'm wondering, is that possible with someone who's a passionate statist? And what, what's your viewpoint on that? Well, I, I look, I mean, I certainly don't believe that we need mirror images of ourselves to date. I mean, that would be kind of narcissistic, right? I mean, the differences of perspectives, differences of opinions are very important. You know, differences of facts, differences of logic, not so much. Um, so dating someone who's a statist, well, I mean, the, the question is why are they a statist? And they are a statist because they believe that statism provides the best possible solutions, the most consistent possible solutions to whatever problem they face, right? So, you know, environmentalist says, well, the government has to pass a law because that's the only way that we're going to protect the environment. And if we let the greedy capitalists manage the environment, we're going to end up in a smoking crater called the world, you know, uh, uh, eating dead maggots and, and baby toes and so on, right? So the, the question is not why is she a status? The question is, what does statism mean to her? Well, I assume that she cares about the poor and the sick and the old and and law and order and, and justice and <laughs> whatever, right? And she believes that the state is the only method which can provide those things. And so if you don't argue about the moral root of her perspective or her opinion, and you say, well we should stop using the states and trust me, the, the poor will be better off and, and, and the old will be better off and, and blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think that's true. At least it's certainly not provably true because you're talking about what might happen in the future, right? I mean, there's reasons to believe in the long run that the poor will be better off in a free society. I mean, I, I genuinely believe that and vastly better off. Like, mind-bendingly, like, the very richest people 200 years ago had it worse than the very poorest people in the West today, right? I would rather be a guy living under a bridge in New York now than the king of France in the 18th century. Because the guy living under a bridge, you know, he can walk into a emerge and get health care. There's food flowing over. I mean, he can go get a job. He can write. There's lots of opportunities and lots of possibilities and so on that, I mean – you get uh, a urinary tract infection as the king of France in the 18th century, and you're like dead in a month, right, uh, if you're lucky. Whereas, you know, you get one of those, you can just go into a, a homeless shelter, you could, they take you to emerge, you get your medicine, and Bob's your uncle, right? Now, in the same way, the poor in 200 years will be vastly better off than the very richest people today. I have no doubt of that, no doubt of that whatsoever. But, but you can't prove it. Right? You can sort of make arguments and blah, blah, blah. So you cannot win a consequentialist argument. You cannot win a utilitarian or pragmatic argument with a statist. You can't because they already believe they have something that works. Right? The welfare state helps the poor. An absence of the welfare state will create suffering among the poor. And there's no doubt whatsoever that if the welfare state ended tomorrow, there would be staggering suffering among the poor. There's no doubt that if the social security checks were not cashable tomorrow, there would be staggering suffering among the 
old, right? We, we can agree on that, right? Yes. So a statist genuinely believes that they have something that works, that is sustainable, that is moral, that is agreed on, that is part of the social contract, that is voted for, and that is effective. And so when a libertarian or an ANCAP comes up to a statist and says, we need a stateless society or a vastly reduced government or whatever, this is like me going to you and saying, oh, uh, right, you need to get to the airport, right? Okay, well, you could call a cab. You could call a cab. Or what I could do is design for you a giant catapult that will be ready in about 150 years. I don't really know what it's going to look like. Uh, I don't really know how it's going to be powered, and I sure as hell have no way of knowing how it is you're going to land. But would, mm-hmm. you, would you accept that instead of taking a cab? And the status is like, well, I guess it'd be kind of cool if you could catapult me to the airport in 100 years, but I kind of got to get to get to the airport now, and I know a cab's going to get me there in an hour, and it cost, doesn't cost me 40 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how we look to status if we argue from consequence. The poor will be better off. Uh, the system is unsustainable, blah de blah de blah This is why I focus on the argument from morality, which is the state is coercion. And if you are okay with coercion, then you can be a statist, but you can at least be aware that you're forcing people at gunpoint to do what you think is right against their conscience, better judgment, and free will. Right? Every law that the state passes is against people's conscience, judgments, and free will. Because if it wasn't, they wouldn't need a law, right? You don't need a law that says to... Yeah teenagers be interested in sex and the children like chocolate uh, what they want anyway <laughs> so so i just said don't don't you know being being a status is fine and being a religious person is fine as long as you are aware of the deception and irrationality of religion and the coerciveness of the state right like i mean uh, reading some article about how you know, uh, atheists are bad because they're just not moral or something like that. And, and, and it's all like, I mean, oh, come on. I mean, so the average Christian considers himself non-atheist when he doesn't believe in 9,999 of the gods of the world. I mean, he's far more atheist than he is religious. So if atheism breeds immorality, you know, going one god further than those around you, what the hell does that mean? So you don't believe in 9,999 of them, I just don't believe in 10,000 of them. So what the hell difference does it make? <laughs> anyway, but, but so it's the methodology that matters. If the person is it doesn't I started as a religious statist. I started as a Christian uh, and I started as a socialist. But the relentless commitment to reason and evidence brings up everyone to the same place. All mathematicians end up in the same place. All physicists over time tend to end up in the same place. All biologists tend to end up in the same place. Engineers tend to end up in similar places, at least until new materials are invented. Not a lot of uh, new elements being invented in the universe, but new materials are being invented for engineers all the time. And so, in general... Uh, any commitment to reason and evidence is going to end up with people in the same place. So it doesn't matter where someone starts from. It only matters whether they're interested in 
reason and evidence as the methodology for resolving disputes. Now, if they are, it doesn't matter where they start from. They'll teach you some stuff, you'll teach them some stuff, and you'll end up in a much richer place. I mean, I, I learned a lot about it from my wife I'd never imagined or really thought about. She taught me some stuff, I taught her some stuff. But the methodology was reason and evidence. Now, if you want to date somebody who rejects reason and evidence, I would strongly suggest you might as well stick your dick in a wood chipper and hit frappe. Because <laughs> if you date someone who, is re who rejects reason and evidence, your politics, your religion, your atheism, your anarchism, you name it, that is going to be the least of your problems, my friend. Because if you want to date a woman, and for women, for men, if you want to date a woman who rejects reason and evidence, you are going to end up with either an annoying doormat or a dangerous bitch. Yeah, because I guess they reject reason and evidence. And, and they're not just going to do that in the realm of philosophy. They're going to do that in everything. Rejecting reason and evidence is a principle. I mean, it's a rejection of principles, but it's a principle called rejecting principles, which means if you disagree with her about something and she has no <laughs> compunction with the rejection of reason and evidence, how the hell are you ever going to resolve a dispute? Because she just make up shit or reject everything you say. Even if you have a videotape, she'll say, well, that was doctored. Like, the, the, the religion and policy is the least of your problems. It's a good litmus test. Is somebody able to accept reason and evidence in these areas? And what the hell is it going to be like for your children? If you want to have children with a woman who rejects reason and evidence, how the hell is she going to interact with the children? She's going to be a bully. She's going to be an asshole. She's going to be fundamentally an abuser because she rejects reason and evidence. Which means that she has to have some way of convincing people without reason and evidence. I mean, I sit there. I, I try and convince my daughter of something. It can take me half an hour. I got to think of every analogy. I mean, I'm a pretty good communicator. <laughs> I sweat like buckets trying to convince her of stuff and, and to make my case and to make the point and to explain to her why she shouldn't eat too much sugar or why she needs to go to bed early or, you know, why she shouldn't wave paper around. She's got this habit of waving paper around. I just wait for a paper cut to the eyeball and so on, right? Um, just just why, why she needs to floss her teeth. Why, I mean, making the case for that is really tough and complicated, but I'm always going back to reason and evidence because I never want her to obey me. I want her to obey the facts. That's the point of, I think, being a good parent is to have your children obey principles and evidence. So that, I think, is a really important aspect of things. And if you don't have a woman in your life who's that way inclined, she's going to end up having to bully the kids. Man, alive, you don't want that. Then you're going to end up divorced. You're going to end up with a, a hateful bitch on your hands who's mean to your kids, uh, who's going to just blow up your whole life, and you can end up paying alimony and child support for 20 years to someone you hate. And so, uh, yeah, uh, it's not statism that you would reject or religion or anything of those things. You would reject someone who rejects reason and evidence. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. I guess it's kind of like a, when you're waiting for something to bake you know, in the oven, you just don't know how it's going to turn out. And so maybe I'm at that stage where I want this pre-baked person who's not a statist. And whether logic or reason will take us there eventually, I, I can't see that. So um, I, I guess that's maybe a future state that I need to figure. I need, definitely need to figure out before I commit significantly. But uh, it's, it's frustrating that it's very frustrating to, you know, see the emperor without their, you know, status, you know, see this emperor without their clothes and uh, 
try to convince people that there's no clothes. It's just so obvious that that's the case. And you, when you make these very simple arguments, like for instance, against violence, it it's incredible that that uh, this ends justify the means will come back at you, and it, it it becomes very frustrating to continually need to say, well, not so fast, um, that sort of thing. But I, I do understand what you're saying. Well, uh, I'm not sure that you do. <laughs> with all due respect, uh, the reason for that is because. I'm telling you how the pudding is going to turn out. I'm telling you what the recipe is. So a woman who says to you the end justifies the means means that she's she's an advocation. She advocates and is perfectly comfortable with and in fact is it's a positive thing. It's a good thing for her to use aggression to get what she wants. Right? Yes. Yes. But as you mentioned, you were not a statist, or you were a statist when you were younger. Uh, this woman's 26 years old, so I, I don't think that maybe all the art, I mean, potentially, potentially, and that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out right now. Has she heard the, the logic or the reason that could bring you to a place where you um, will realize that that's wrong? Well, I'm not sure what, what you're asking. Does she not underst- understand... I mean, there's only a, a couple of different ways that you can reject uh, a stateless argument, right? You mm-hmm. can either say that the government is not violence, right? Yep. Or you can say that violence is the best solution. Right? I mean, th- those are, I mean, I guess in a couple, there's only two. So you can eat, and, and the way that you say that the government is not violence is your social contract, democracy, get to vote for people, blah, 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 right? All that, sh- all that sort of crap. And that's pretty easy to rebut, right? Like, majority approval does not translate into morality, right? I mean, mm-hmm. two, two, guys, two guys and a girl vote on whether to rape the girl, and if the two guys are rapists, they win. That doesn't make it moral, right? Majority opinion doesn't, doesn't achieve anything. If Hitler was voted in, for God's sakes, right? I mean, it doesn't, doesn't, I mean, the majority opinion doesn't make anything moral. Now, that... Fight, that argument was won in Western history a long time ago. It's unfortunately kind of backtracked now because we live in such a democratically heavy society. But, I mean, that's why America was a republic, not a democracy. Because the the problems of democracy, I mean, anybody who studied ancient philosophy and know that Socrates was voted to be put to death knows that there may be a few problems with democracy, right? The majority mob rule. So, you can say there's not – you can say it's not violence – or they say, well, it is violence, but the, you know, the alternative would be even worse, right? But either way, either way, it doesn't really matter. If the woman has a fundamental inability to understand that people pointing guns at you is violent, then she really doesn't understand the world very well, and she doesn't understand what violence is. In other words, she mistakes voluntarism for violence, which means that she's not going to have any red line in her soul, which she will not cross, which is violence, because she doesn't know the difference between voluntarism and violence. So then when she's dealing with kids, she's going to yell at them. She's going to bully them. She's because she doesn't she's going to think that's voluntary. She's going to think that's fine. That's that's right. It's not violence. It's discipline. See, this is what. 
It's not violence. It's the law. I'm not a bully. I'm an authority. It's not spanking. It's discipline. It's not murder. It's war. It's not theft. It's taxation. It's not kidnapping. It's arrest. It's not caging people. It's prison. Right? It's not enslaving the unborn. It's a national debt. It's not counterfeiting. It's the Federal Reserve, right? This, this, this blending of voluntarism and violence is going to have enormous repercussions in your personal life. I'm not yelling. I'm just trying to get my point across. You won't listen. I have to spank him. He's not obeying me. He's not listening. Right? So not listening is in a less violent moral category than spanking because there's this fundamental confusion between voluntarism and violence. That's not fundamentally about politics. Nothing is fundamentally about politics. Everything is fundamentally about the family. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I, I would bet my last kidney on this, that if you start examining this woman's history, you will find very quickly that this comes exactly out of her childhood, where her parents confused voluntarism with violence, right? I mean, the fundamental confusion the parents make is that the child is not there voluntarily. Anyway, so does that, does that, I'm telling you how it's, it's how the, what the recipe leads to. You know, it's like, I'm telling you, well, look, if I take a deep shit in your chocolate cake, what's it going to taste like? Don't worry, there's still a lot of chocolate in it. And you're just like, well, I don't think that's going to be very good. You know, but I just still don't know whether it's going to come out good or bad. It's like, no, 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 I'm taking a deep shit in your chocolate cake. It doesn't matter how much frosting you put on my doogie, it's still going to taste like doogie, right? Yeah, so I guess, is there, is there a way that you've seen where if you're confronting with someone who you're interested in a romantic relationship, I mean, obviously you're not going to change them, um, or do you just abandon early and say, you know, cut your losses, get out of here and search in a different pool? Because I'm finding that, I mean, particularly in very metropolitan areas, I live in Chicago, and I, I just actually moved here recently from New York, um, you know, uh, if you want to find somebody who's attractive and uh, not... You moved from New York uh, to Chicago. Was was New York not cold and socialist enough for you? <laughs> I'm just wondering. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you can get anywhere more socialist than, than New York. Actually, Chicago is slightly... I, I don't know. Uh, so, but uh, I guess there's a mating pool, and uh, I'm just not, I'm not seeing this, uh, this non-statist... Uh, mating pool out there I, I really don't see it and and then a lot of times you'll there's see look, somebody there's no look there's no look there's no non-status mate dating pool out there right i mean you gotta be like uh, laris of the real girl if you if you want the perfect woman you gotta make her i mean you're sorry you're gonna have to like fashion her out of like duck butter and goat parts or something or basically you're gonna just have to teach her some basic rationality and she'll teach you stuff and dodge instincts and and all that and maybe how to you know deal with negotiating in relationships better or whatever she's good at right but you're going to have to teach her some some reason and evidence stuff. I mean, of course, right? I mean, you're like the only Chinese guy. Sorry, you're like, yeah, you're like the only Chinese guy in a Welsh village. And he's like, well, nobody else here speaks Chinese. What am I going to do? Wait for someone to come along who speaks Chinese? No. Learn Welsh or teach them Chinese if you want to talk to someone and can't leave, right? So do not assume that anyone's going to fall in your lap who's an anarchist or an atheist or a clear thinker or a philosopher or anything like that. They may have some stuff you like. Like if they're on the left, you're like, oh, yeah, they're critical of U.S. foreign policy. That's great. 
but they're, you know, all hot and bothered for carbon credits and uh, <laughs> progressive taxation. Yeah, okay, fine. Well, what's wrong with U.S. foreign policy? Well, they, uh, you know, they, they go and invade people. They go and use force, initiate force. Well, you know, explain to me how that's different from taxation. And, you know, you don't have to be lecture guy. You can be asked questions guy. You can be the, they don't even know what you believe, but you ask a whole bunch of questions. Like that sort of maddeningly opaque Socratic method where you just keep saying, you just keep asking questions. Uh, I, I think that's a very helpful thing to do. But, yeah, if, if you're with somebody who's committed to irrationality, you cut your losses and you don't get involved. The moment you stay involved with someone, you're saying you're fine. But you cannot get involved with someone and fundamentally want them to change. Right? That, that's, that's dishonest. That is, I don't mean you're consciously being dishonest, but that's, that's dishonest. Um, you know, if you, if you go to – if there are 10 restaurants and you go to one particular restaurant night after night – and then say, well, this is this is not even close to the best restaurant. Then this doesn't of these ten. That doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. So you you can ask, and given that you're looking for a needle in a haystack, you've got to have. You can't sort of fondle every <laughs> every piece of hay, right? You got to be quick. You got to have a metal detector. You got to be you know discard, discard, discard to get to the one that you want, to get to the one who's right, to get to the one who's rational. Dating for people who think. And I don't necessarily mean who think correctly like us, but anyone who thinks, dating for the intelligent, dating for the critical, dating for the skeptical. You know, most people, they just like a like a whole bunch of birds. You ever see those little starlings? They all fly around. It looks like they're being pushed around by some unseen wind, even if there's not a breath in the sky. They're all just twisting and turning based on some inner instincts that, I don't know, they people have gone insane trying to study. That's what people do. They just... They've heard that global warming is real and that anybody who's a skeptic is evil. And so if you say, well, you know, there hasn't been any warming for 16 years and now there's like 40% more ice uh, on, the, um, uh, on the Antarctic or the Arctic and, and do you know that the ice is also growing uh, in, um, on Mars and, and all that? Like, just, you know, there's, there's some reasons to be skeptical. I don't know, maybe it's real, but, but it's not unqualifiedly true in the same way that mammals are warm-blooded is unqualifiedly true like but oh you're a skeptic that means that you hate the planet and you you know probably get half your paycheck from the coke brothers and <laughs> big oil right like they're just taught or they don't think i mean leonardo dicaprio is 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 big on it and therefore it's got to be true right like the protest against the iraq war with you know bruce springsteen and, and cheryl crow and michael moore and all the they, they were incessant, and they're all completely missing in, in action. I think The Onion has a pretty funny article. I think it's The Onion, but basically saying we can only assume that these 16 anti-war celebrities have been kidnapped because they're nowhere to be seen in the run-up to the war in Syria. And Ed Asner has come out and said, well, we don't want to be perceived as anti-black. It's like, dude, if you're not criticizing a black guy for the same thing that you criticized a white guy for, you're a fucking racist. Do not treat blacks differently than whites. That's the very essence of racism. Whether it's giving them a free get-out-of-jail-free card or it's being assholes to them, it's equally racism. If you say, I'm not criticizing President Obama because I don't want to be perceived as racist, you're a racist because you have a different standard for a black guy than you do for a white guy. You're a racist. Sorry, you don't get to solve that by making this stuff up. Um, I'm going to refrain from criticizing him. Anyway, so I just want to sort of point out that anybody who thinks is going to have a challenge in the dating pool, but you sure as hell don't want to get stuck breeding with a muggle. Sorry, go ahead. 
here, here's, here's my, I'm just going to look into the past at a, a younger Steph. I'm sure, given your critical reasoning skills, that you could put up a heck of an argument on the other side when you were on that other side. So how do you know whether you've got somebody on your hands that is that person that can come to logic and reason and that sort of thing versus someone who isn't? That's that's what I'm struggling with. You know, you know, you just you have to be stern with your penis. That's all. You know, like like you have to be stern with your tongue. Your tongue loves sugar, and your ass hates it, right? And so you got to be stern with your tongue. You say, "Listen, I know sugar tastes good, blah blah blah, right? But you're trying to kill us here, right? <laughs> right? I mean, your brain loves nicotine, and your lungs are like, stop with the nicotine, <laughs> kind of thing, right? And so you just have to say to your penis, like you have to say to your penis, "Look, I know you want to dump your stuff like everywhere. I mean, if there was uh, like a." A woodpecker hole in a fairly moist tree, you'd be spiraling me that way like some sort of divining rod, right? So you just you just have to be stern with your penis because, you know, your penis is like, yeah, I really don't care that much about her abstract positions on the existence or non-existence of the Old Testament deity, but she's got some, you know, some warm wetness there that would be great to sneeze in. That's that's all your penis is. is for, so you just... You know, and I'm not saying I ever was always successful in this battle. Don't get me wrong, but I'm saying that with the hindsight and perspective experience, you want to date, uh, which basically means you want to have sex, and there's a part of you that doesn't really give a shit about the woman's political viewpoints or whatever. It basically it's the part of you that's you know, on average five to six inches long and uh, <laughs> will drag you off a cliff with the lemmings of lust uh, if it, if you let it. But it's just a matter of of recognizing. That you just you can't live on donuts alone, and you can't make your decisions based on lust. And you you know you do the tricks, the, the usual tricks. You know you imagine her when she's eighty. You look at a picture of her mom and imagine her looking like that. Like I saw, I saw this woman today, uh, walking around, and she looked great. Uh, and then her mom was with her. I mean, you could tell the resemblance and all that, right? The mom was with her, and the mom looked like you know nine miles of bad road, and. You just okay. So now, but then you know, this is who if you marry. Hopefully, this is who you can end up with. You know, is you know, is her hotness going to mean anything at that point? Is her hotness going to mean anything if you have babies with her and the baby's got colic all night? You got to stay up together. You know, like her cleavage ain't going to do you a whole bunch of good there. I guess it might do the baby some good if they're milk filled or whatever. But you just you have to be stern with your penis and you have to say, look, dickhead, which is actually not a pejorative for your penis because it is a dick and it has a head. But you say, look, dickhead, um, we, we got to negotiate here. Like, I get that you want to hip sneeze yourself into the universe as whatever, right? But we got to balance this a little bit, right? Like, I mean, you know, it's the same thing. I got a sweet tooth because, you know, I'm British and grew up with an anxious childhood. So I'm, I'm big on the sugar. And I say, look, I mean, yeah, we can have a little bit of sugar, but, you know, my God, I mean, we got to, we got to, we, we always sort of go for some longevity here as well. And I don't like the dentist drilling into parts of my head or whatever, right? So, so we got to have a negotiation. I mean, a lot of health, a lot of mental health, a lot of physical health. A lot. It's all just a matter of recognizing you've got these different parts of you, right? This is the internal family systems therapy approach. You've got a lot of different parts of you. I call them the Miko system. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's part of you that, that wants stuff that's really dangerous for you. You know, I mean, and, and lust is one of these things. It's it's great. You know, you know, it's wonderful in a, in a sort of virtuous and healthy and happy relationship. It's the best thing ever. But you know, as as a starting point, you know, it's it's just not not a good plan. And you want something not that's going to be quick, but that's something that's going to last. And for, for for something to last, you simply have to have reason and evidence in common, or 
you're gonna you're gonna fight 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 like i saw this <laughs> i don't know the hotness thing right so i saw this uh I don't know. Only a woman's magazine could say something this retarded. I mean, men's magazines say retarded stuff too, but the only woman's magazines could say something this retarded about this subject. So it was like the revenge picture. I, mean, I can't even remember the woman's name, but it was some 27-year-old woman who was – some guy broke up with her. Some famous guy broke up with her. And it's like she looks so great on this magazine cover that she – it's the best revenge, you know. Uh, she she looks so great that he must be eating his heart out. And it's like, not if she's horrible. He's not. I mean, I went out with a woman for a while, and later she became a uh, and and it was not a good breakup or anything. Later she became a, a spinning instructor, you know, like an aerobics instructor. <laughs> yeah, she looked great, but you know, the temptation was zero, zero whatsoever. Like. No matter how good that piece of cheesecake looks, if you know somebody blew their nose into the mix, you just don't want to eat it. The very thought of eating it is going to look nauseous. It's going to make you feel nauseous, right? And once you know what's inside someone, the, the, the sex is just not that tempting because it's like, Bleh. you know, like I could eat this wonderful sandwich with a, you know, a thin line of maggots in the middle. But I know the maggots are there even if I can't see them. So I just don't want to eat it. I'm not hungry. And so that's why… I think the, the sort of moral examination is really, uh, really important. Uh, your, your penis does not care about your future, fundamentally. Uh, it doesn't care about your happiness. Uh, all it wants to do is make another penis, and it will use any trick, uh, hormone, delusory, uh, you know, whatever. It will use any trick in the book it can to make another penis, you know, with a U or with some mini U attached, right? And so, like, your, your tongue just wants the sugar and it wants the fat, and uh, your body is like, well, maybe not so much, right? So you just have to have that negotiation and say, you know, you say to your penis, listen, I promise you, I promise you, man, I am going to get you a lot of great sex. I am going to get you a lot of great sex. But you got to be patient with me while we find the right person. A lot of great sex. You know, we're not going to get involved in this relationship where it's like an incredible amounts of self-medicating, narcotizing, dissolve yourself sex for like a month or two. And then nothing because we don't like each other. You know, like, trust me, slow and steady. You know, we'll, we'll get to the right place and we'll have great sex three or four times a week for the rest of our lives. We get to the right place. But dear God in heaven, let's not go for the junk food of lust with no context for the person. Because then we might get a lot of sex in the short run. And we also might get some STDs. We also might get someone pregnant. We also might, we also might, she might have some crazy ex who hunts us down. So trust me, we want to be around to raise our kids. We want to be with someone we love. We want to be with someone in the long term. Be patient. Let me ask a couple of questions. Uh, let me find out the right person who's safe and healthy and fun and virtuous. And then trust me, we will have great sex for the rest of our lives. But um, if we go your route, uh, you know, we're going to end up uh, having you know, maybe a lot of sex in the short run, and then maybe we'll get married, the sex will drop off because we don't like each other, and maybe they'll have a kid, and then we're going to end up divorced, we're going to have no money, and be able to, unable to go out on any other dates, we'll have no sex at all. So, you know, just just be patient, Mr. P. Uh, I'll get us to the right place, but we got to negotiate. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense. What I'm saying I is, just... on dates, talk to your penis. Um, yeah. And anyone who finds that cute, just marry them. Like, just, just carry a ring with you at all times. And, you know, if you just talk down and say, well, you know, she's very attractive and you definitely want to put yourself someplace uh, moist and dark. But, you know, still got a couple of questions to ask. So, uh, 
you know, don't make me go to the bathroom and zip up on your head. You know, no <laughs> something about Mary scenes for us. So be quiet and just listen with me and let's find the right place where we can have great sex forever. Uh, you know, have that chat with your penis during the date and anyone who finds that helpful and useful, just propose on the spot. That's my, <laughs> that's my suggestion. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate You're it. Very, very welcome. You're very welcome. And uh, thank you, everyone. I'm sorry if we didn't get to everyone, uh, but it's pretty late. I'm trying to give Mike some slightly less insane editing requirements or needs. But, um, yeah, have yourself a wonderful week, everyone. FDRURL.com forward slash donate if you would like to help out. If you'd like to join the Last Fair Book Club, it's uh, lfb.org forward slash Stefan, S-T-E-F-A-N. Look forward to your support and your help. And remember to check at freedomainradio.com. Uh, we will be posting, of course, information about upcoming speeches. I'll be actually speaking at Toronto, at the entire city. No, in Toronto, uh, which we'll post more details about. And uh, Joe Rogan coming up, uh, Peter Joseph. Uh, uh, and um, so have yourselves a wonderful week, everyone. And uh, I will speak to you Sunday morning, 10 a.m.